Father in heaven, thank you so much for this privilege we have to be at camp meeting. We believe that wonderful things happen here when you, Lord Jesus, meet with your people. And I pray that as we spend this time together, it's a safe environment where we're all together like-minded believers, but we understand that we come to these mountaintops so that we can be prepared to go into the valley and to do the work that you have called us to do in more difficult circumstances and more trying situations. And we pray, Lord, that you would just strengthen us during this time so that we'll be prepared for those times. Now, Lord, abide with us. Teach us by your Spirit. Give us understanding. Make things clear for us today, Lord. And help us to have confidence in what we believe and in your Word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So you were able to get started this morning uh, in the doctrinal part of things with the topic of uh, the intro to prophecy. I know that Pastor Mark was not able to um, get quite as much through Daniel 2 as we had hoped, um, but we knew that there was a lot of preliminary stuff. Since this is a different session for us, and we're doing the doctrinal boot camp, the Bible study boot camp, um, we don't have as much time to talk about just the methodology and the foundation, and so we needed to take some time to do that this morning, and we knew that there was a chance that uh, that might cause time to be a little limited, but hopefully in these next sessions we'll give you a little bit more of a clear picture of each topic of, of, of where we're headed and how to, how to do a study. I want to tell you that the topic that we're talking about today, I'm going to go ahead and write it on the board, is salvation. So I'm glad I was given a very narrow topic to talk to you about. No, <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is a very important topic, but I'm going to be honest with you. When it comes to uh, an evangelistic meeting or a Bible study, oftentimes, the truth be told, this is one that people kind of yawn at. Do you know what I mean by yawn? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Seems a little boring. Like, okay, yeah, I've heard that before. It's not real controversial. It's not real cutting. It's not real, you know, I mean, the saints aren't sitting at the edge of their seats at the evangelistic meeting during this one, wondering what's going to happen when something is dis disclosed, like the Antichrist, or Saturday is really the Sabbath, or the dead are not really in heaven, or, you know, there's not those types of elements of dramatic difference, and so we tend to kind of yawn at it a little bit. But what I want to tell you about this particular topic is that it is not merely a topic for one session of your Bible study series. The reality is, this is the topic that is permeating your entire Bible study series. So, so what I'm going to be talking to you about, I'm going to give you some basic things and uh, uh, lay out concepts for you that I hope become clear to you, because if they do, then you can you know, share them throughout your series. But I'm just wanting you to understand something. When you're giving a Bible study to somebody, you're wanting to see their soul saved. That's what you're doing. So you have to have an understanding of this topic, not merely to present this topic, but to know why you're even doing what you're doing. Okay, which is why when we talk about the topic of salvation, 
perhaps more than any other, although lots of them are like this. The truth is, salvation must be experienced before it is fully understood. Did you catch that? In other words, if you yourself have not been born again, it's going to be a very challenging study for you to give. <laughs> the study of, on salvation. I mean, this is one of those things that helps me to understand why. And I'm going to be a little transparent here for a moment. Why I, who am nothing more than a glorified layperson, Okay, that's what I am. I'm a glorified layperson. Uh, somebody who was just, uh, the Lord reached down and, and, you know, rescued from where I was in my life. And I'll talk about that a little bit in a moment. And then from there, I started giving Bible studies and that went well. And then I started preaching. And then I started, somebody said I should try pastoring a church. I said, okay, I'll try it. And then I, that was part-time, and then I started getting calls, you want to do this full-time? Okay, I'll do that full-time. And then, you want to take this larger church? Okay, I'll take that larger church. Oh, you want to come work at the conference? I guess, and I go work in the conference. But basically, I've never been to seminary. I've never been to theological training in any uh, of our institutions. So for those of you who feel that that is the most essential thing, you can, we'll give you a moment to leave. Exactly. <laughs> But, let me tell you something. The reason that I believe that not only me, but you too, can be just as effective as somebody who has been through that type of theological training is because salvation is something that you experience. It is not something that you merely are taught. It is not head knowledge. In many ways, I did not learn the head knowledge of salvation until after the Lord saved my soul. In other words, I didn't understand the, how to explain it and articulate it until after I went through it. And then, oh, okay, you begin to understand it a little bit better. So you can repeat stuff by rote. Okay, you can mechanically tell somebody steps or something like that. But it will mean nothing if you have not experienced it. It's your experience that enables you to be able to speak with conviction, to be able to understand the nuances of somebody's personal, individual situation, to know how to help them through whatever it is they're going through. It's your own experience. Salvation is something that must be experienced more than simply understood. You talk about conversion and the, the idea of being saved or born again and uh, you're talking about something that ultimately, I like to say, comes by revelation. You remember the time when Jesus asked, uh, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And they said, Well, you know, a, a prophet or Elijah or whatever. And they had all these different answers. And Jesus said, Well, who do you say that I am? And who answered? Peter. Peter. You got to love Peter. He always had an answer. And in this case, he spoke immediately with conviction and confidence. And he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood 
has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now, what did he mean by that? What, is he even, what do you mean flesh and blood is not revealed? How did Jesus know that somebody didn't just tell him or that he wasn't just listening to what was being told him? Because Jesus knew that for someone to speak with conviction about the fact that he was the Son of God, the Messiah, the only way that someone can speak with that conviction is if they have received it from revelation from God through the Spirit of God. There's something about salvation it's different than head knowledge. You, you know it in your heart. It's something that happens in your life. Okay, And that is the fundamental ingredient that makes someone able to be a soul winner. The number one ingredient that makes someone able to be a soul winner is that they themselves have had their soul won by the Lord Himself. And it comes by... I like to say revelation. Now, I'll talk in a moment about, you know, that happens in different ways for different people and different speeds and different times and all of those types of things. And I'll talk about how you can know. But I just want you to understand that that is something that comes from the Lord. And that experience is the number one prerequisite to having success in soul winning and especially in giving a study on the topic of salvation. Um, you know, I have to take a moment before getting into some of the details of sharing this topic to just give you a little bit of my own experience. And before I do, I'll just say this. When you give a Bible study, it is not a cold transference of facts. When you give a Bible study, what you're really doing is giving your testimony. Now, you say, I don't understand. You know, when I'm giving a Bible study, I'm studying the doctrines in the Bible. What do you mean you're giving your testimony? We think of testimony as one thing and a Bible study as another. But the truth is that your sharing of those Bible truths, you can only share them because you yourself have become persuaded by them. So when you are sharing those Bible truths, you're actually simply witnessing of your own convictions. If you're not witnessing of your own convictions, you won't do very well giving that Bible study. And you'll trip all over it because you don't really believe it. You don't understand it. You, don't, you understand what I'm saying? But if you are convicted of it, then all you're doing is witnessing. If you're reading the Bible when it talks about witnessing, it says that that's when you share what you have seen and heard. What you yourself have personally experienced. Well, it's not just talking about in some you know, uh, miraculous supernatural manifestation or something. It means that when I have seen in the Bible, oh, that's clear. That makes so much sense. When I see that, then I'm able to share it with somebody else and that's witnessing. I'm sharing what I have seen and heard in the Bible. So Bible studies are really the purest form of witnessing. Because where have you seen Jesus more clearly than in the Bible? Where have you heard His voice speaking to you more clearly than in the Bible. And if you haven't, might I suggest to you that you have not seen Him as clearly as you could. If all you've seen Him is in nature and through providence and through circumstances, and I believe He speaks through those things, but if that's the only place you've seen Him, then you have not seen Him in the purest form. <laughs> because the Bible says that we are actually converted by the Bible. It says in 1 Peter 1.23 that we are born again through the Word of God. 
that lives and abides forever. So it's through the Word. You read the words of Jesus and they just scream off the page. You know why that is? Because the Bible, in Ephesians 6 it says this, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. In other words, you're holding it in your hand, but in reality, the Spirit of God, when you open the Bible and begin to read it, the Spirit of God is the one who's holding the Word. And He's going to use it to shape your thinking and your attitude and your heart. So when you open the Bible, it's really you're putting it in the hands of God to do something miraculous. It's not like that with a history book, right? It's not like that with your you know, encyclopedia. It's not like that. But when you open the Bible, it's the Word of God. That's why Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living, powerful. Jesus said in John 6.63, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. It's not like any other words. You know what I'm saying? It's got life to it. It actually, the Lord creates with His Word. That's exactly what He does. You know that from the creation account, right? Genesis 1. Let there be light. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. When God speaks, He creates and so when you're reading the Word, something happens. And that is exactly what happened to me. I can tell you that Mark and I grew up in an Adventist home until I was, uh, almost, I was nine years old, almost about to turn ten years old, when my parents moved to uh, Missouri from Ohio. And we had you know, gone to church all those years. My parents were uh, not... Real committed Adventists, but we went to church every week and that sort of thing. But somewhere along the line, and various factors involved in this, but one of them was that my uh, dad got caught up reading into Desmond Ford. Some of you may be familiar with him from years gone by, 1980-ish. He was a teacher who eventually left the Adventist church or was asked to leave. (laughs) He had his credentials removed. And he uh, no longer, I mean, he believes certain things. But anyway, bottom line is, he would not necessarily have taught this, but my dad took some of his teachings to their logical conclusion, which was, we don't really need to go to church. We don't really need, I'm saved. You know, I don't need that in order to be saved. I have my own relationship with God, et cetera, et cetera. And so my parents stopped going to church uh, when I was 10. And... We didn't talk about God at all that I remember. Um, I do know that they threw away basically all of the books that we had. So all the Ellen White books and all the little red ones, they're all gone. And, and my mother gradually started to become more and more like the world around her. And, and I remember she would speak occasionally kind of critically about the church and warmly about the new friends she was making and... You know, uh, so there was a little bit of bitterness in the whole thing that I felt, but we didn't really talk about God specifically or doctrine or beliefs or anything like that, hardly at all. And it went that way as I just went to high school, partied with my friends, did typical stuff. And in college, I was 22 years old, and uh, I had been in Missouri, and my parents had moved back to Ohio. I was going to college in Missouri. And uh, I had a bunch of stuff. The Lord smote me to uh, prepare me to receive Him. 
But I had two knee surgeries and a tonsillectomy and I couldn't work and I owed back rent and I had all this stuff happening in one semester. And my mother was trying to get me to come back home and go to school in Ohio where she was. And finally, because of all that, and then she, the, the, like the, the thing that finally convinced me was when she told me I could transfer and all my credits would transfer, but my GPA would get to start over. I thought, oh boy, <laughs> I better do that. <laughs> so I did it. Uh, when I went over to my, for my junior year, I transferred. Anyway, um, then I was there for a couple of years. I didn't have any real friends in there. I got out of the environment where I was, where I had these close buddies. I would go back and see them in Missouri sometimes. They were like brothers to me, these guys that I lived with and hung out with for years. But ultimately, when I came back to Ohio, I didn't really know anybody. I hung out with, a, not Mark, but a different brother's friends. And, you know, we go to the sports bar and do whatever. And uh, somewhere along the line, I decided that out of almost curiosity, I should read a little bit of the Bible. And I think part of what sparked it was during my uh, junior high, high school, all, all that period of time when I was in Missouri, uh, I had some friends, some of them, you know, I had a couple that were Christians, a couple that were atheists, and we would late at night, you know, when we weren't clearly thinking, get into these conversations about whether or not there was a God. And I was a resident Christian among us. I still believed that there was a God. And if anybody were to ask me, I would say I'm kind of like a Methodist. I didn't... <laughs> Because I did not want to say I was Adventist. I had had too many negative things associated with that, and they were, they were, Adventists were too different. And I thought that Methodists were kind of your run-of-the-mill average Christian. I have never stepped a foot in a Methodist, you know, I had never seen a Methodist church or whatever. I didn't even know exactly what they believed, but I just said, I'm kind of like a Methodist. And so we would talk about whether there was a God, and I would argue for a God, and my argument went like this. There, is, there has to be a God because we're all uh, essentially good people. Which I came to learn that wasn't true in the Bible. But uh, that's what I said. And I believe now that the reason I said that, and this is important for now for me as I give Bible studies to people now that I understand it. The reason I said it was because, you know how when you do something wrong you feel guilty? You feel... But you do something right and you kind of feel good, that that was good, you know? And I kind of took that reality that inside of me there was this voice kind of, you know, you feel bad about doing something wrong and you feel just fine when you do something right as essentially being me, being a good person naturally. What I didn't realize was that is the voice of God. The voice of God labors with every person and speaks to their heart, and He is drawing. I didn't realize that the, that the Lord Jesus was drawing me my whole life. You know? It's incredible when you think about it. But I kind of had that mentality. But when I would get in these conversations with my friends, the one thing that I was always a little worried about is they would ask me anything specific. <laughs> because I knew nothing about the Bible. Like, I didn't remember a single text. Okay? When I was up to nine going to church, there were only three things I remembered. One was Pat White playing the guitar around the campfire as we sang Kumbaya. I remember that. Number two, I remembered my Sabbath school teacher having a seizure. 
because that's hard to forget. And number three, I remembered this Good News Bible I had that had these, you ever seen the Good News Bible has little sketches in it? And I remembered this sketch in John 11 of uh, Jesus calling Lazarus and saying, Lazarus, come forth. And this little sketch mummy of Lazarus coming out of the tomb. That's all I remembered, okay? That's my religious uh, foundation that I had. And so I was a little worried if somebody would start asking me about it, that I really was kind of talking like I knew why there was a God and I, I was a Christian or whatever, and I knew nothing. And if they knew anything about me back then, it was that I was a people pleaser. And if there's one thing I didn't want to be, it was embarrassed. That was like my greatest fear. And I was kind of caught hanging out here. And I thought, at some point, I need to read a little bit of the Bible just so that I got something to say. And there's something important. And I'm so grateful to my parents. Even though they left the church and yah, 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 the truth is they put into my heart the reality that I believed the Bible was true. I did. I believed it was true. I never read it. I didn't know what was in it, but I believed it was true. And I argued for the existence of God. I have to tell you, this is a little bit of a side note, but even during that period, maybe even before then, I'm trying to remember when it was. I'll never remember. But I believed or became persuaded that there was a God from my own thinking and logic. And I'm going to convince you now too. I said to myself, this is before my conversion or anything, I said to myself, you know, you ever have deep thoughts? This is one of those days. I said, I exist. The very fact that I exist is evidence that something always existed. Was that too deep for you? I mean, it's true, right? I mean, I live, I'm alive, I'm thinking... This is evidence that something always existed. Because if there was ever a time when absolutely nothing existed, then nothing would ever exist. You understand? Yeah. So something had to always exist. And then you're only really given a couple of options that are out there, right? One is that the something that always existed is like, you know, helium gas and, you know, rocks and what have you. And you're kind of stuck with the question, where did that come from? You know what I'm saying? Like, where did the rocks come from? Okay, but let's just say that they were there. From all eternity, the rocks and the gas were always there. Well, then I'm asking myself the question, I'm so different from a rock. <laughs> like... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so anyway, I'm so different from a rock, and I, and to give reasons why I'm different from a rock, I think and I feel, I have um, warmth of affection, I have anger, I have all of these emotions. How do you get emotion out of a rock? How do you get values? How do you get intelligence? How do you get that out of a rock? It's just not logical. It's totally dumb. I mean, it is unbelievably dumb. 
it's really that, I mean, when you, if you actually took time to think about it, which I'm not asking you today because it might hurt, but if you really thought about it, you would say to yourself, that is so dumb. I'm glad Pastor Jim brought that up. That is really, really dumb. There's no possible, possible way that a rock could become a thinking, loving, feeling, morally uh, driven. I mean, how do you have, where, where good and bad come from a rock? Right or wrong? I don't, even a pet rock. Hey, this is what I realized. There's only one possibility, and that is that there had to always be intelligence. And I, believe me, I, this was before the Lord ever revealed Himself. This is before I ever got to a point where I, like, I became a believer. But I just, from simple logic, said to myself, there is a God. There is. And that's why Romans 1, by the way, says that we are without excuse. They are without excuse because what may be known of God is manifest in them. In other words, we can tell from our own personage that God, an intelligent being, exists. And uh, so anyway, that was a side note I told you. So here I was feeling like I need, I'm going to be embarrassed if I don't know something about the Bible. So at the age of 22, I decided to, finally, I kind of opened up the Bible and just decided to read a little bit. And I can tell you that for me, you know, I'm a list taker. And I remember afterwards I found a little list that said like, uh, you know, clean up your room, study for such and such an exam, do your laundry, read the Bible. It was, like this, it was just like a casual thing that I was going to do, you know? Right there after I do my laundry and before I, you know, whatever. It was just something that I was going to, I just want to fit that in a little bit. And one day I started to fit it in. And I opened the Bible and I began to read. You know where I started reading? I wish you could tell me because I don't remember. <laughs> I was hoping one of you knew. Yeah. Tell me, tell me the dream and its interpretation. So I started reading in the Bible. I believe it was in the New Testament, but I can't tell you for sure, but I think it was. And because I was always drawn to the red letters, so I think I was reading in the New Testament. Within three weeks, my whole life was different. I started reading the Bible in the basement of my parents' house, living downstairs in my parents' house, and it was like for the first time ever, eternal things were real. And you, you weren't even praying yet. And I, oh, no, no, there's no praying, no whatever. I just started reading my Bible and I could not believe it. In other words, what I'm trying to explain to you is this it wasn't just the words. But God made it so clear to me that this was real. I mean, it made so much sense. It was so powerful. You know, there's certain things about the Bible that are powerful. Like, for instance, it doesn't uh, mince words, you know? And it, it tends to speak about your own condition and about your own heart in ways that nobody else does. I mean, it's so honest. It's, it, it cuts right to who you are, who, who you've even hidden and it speaks to you about yourself in ways that nobody could know. I mean, it's just incredible. And Jesus was revealing Himself to me, and I was overwhelmed. 
I mean, I remember going up and talking to my dad. My dad had rheumatoid arthritis. He's passed away uh, for some years now. But, but he uh, had a bed, two beds in his room, and uh, he would be up all night in pain and different things. So mom had to sleep in a separate room for many years there at the end. But I, I would go into the bed across from him, and I would go in and talk to him. I had a good relationship with my dad. and I remember going up there and taking my Bible and saying, if this is all true, what are we all doing here? Like, it seems so strange to me that all these years, everybody's going through whatever. And did you know what this says? I mean, this is all temporary. This is really short. There's heaven. It's real. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. It's, you know, I mean, I couldn't believe what I was reading. And it changed everything. My friends who I was so close to would call the house and my dad started telling them a little what was happening with me. That didn't go well. My, my best friend called and talked to my dad, and then he, I get on the phone with him, and he says, so, I heard you found Jesus. And he didn't mean it in a nice, kind way. And how awkward was it for him when I said, yeah, it's been incredible, really. And I began to explain to him what was going on. And then it's like, whoa, you really are weird. This really isn't. And then my friends all did this. They all kind of ended up with the same final answer, which is, hey, if that makes you happy, we're really glad for you. We're really happy for you. But I knew that it, it would mean the end of me with all of my... I knew what it would mean. It didn't really settle in until about three weeks after I had started reading. And I had, um, I had gone to church once. My dad took us to church. My, dad, my parents had left the church. But my dad still believed that Saturday was a Sabbath. And when we talked to him about going and taking us to church, he took us to the nearest Adventist church. It was marginally Adventist, but that's a story for another day. Anyway, so I come up to about three weeks after my conversion, which was in November of 1993, and I had something on my calendar. I was supposed to be at a bachelor party of one of these buddies of my, I played on a softball team, and you know what bachelor parties are like. I don't know if you do, but they're not good. And so I started having these feelings. I was down in my room, and I was having these weird feelings like, maybe I shouldn't go to this. And I couldn't quite make it out. And I thought, I'm going to go up and talk to my dad about this because this is really bothering me. And I went up to my dad's room and I sat across from him and I said, Dad, does God really want me to stop drinking? Because if I do, I'm going to lose everything. Like all of my friends, I'm going to lose everything. Does he really want that? I mean, I'm not hurting anybody. And my dad looked at me and he said, I think you're asking the wrong person. Yeah, that's what I said. Mm. I hate wise answers sometimes. They just. <laughs> and we were sitting there, had a little chat going on, and then I just was sitting there thinking. And he happened to be starting to read his Bible too, and that's a story for another day too. But he had a TV tray that he kept next to his bed, and the Bible was open on the TV tray. And I took it and uh, picked it up, and just to see where he was reading. And his Bible was open to Galatians chapter 5. 
And does anybody here know what's in Galatians chapter 5? The fruit of the Spirit, right? Isn't that a warm, uh, fluffy verse? I just love the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. It's wonderful. The problem is, the problem is that right before it, it has what it calls the works of the flesh. And this is how it reads. And I took it, and this is exactly what I did. I took it off his tray, and I began to read. Right here in Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I thought to myself, you know, there's another passage on this, by the way, in Corinthians that, that uh, says drunkards. But this one doesn't. Because I wouldn't have called myself a drunkard. But this says drunkenness and revelries, those who practice such things. So I don't have to be a drunkard, but if I practice drunkenness and if I practice revelries, according to the Apostle Paul, he had a habit of telling them that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I put his Bible back down on the tray. And you know what I did. I went to the bachelor party. That's what I did. And I did all the things that I always did with my friends. And I laughed and goofed off and was sarcastic and was all the things that I always was. Except on the inside, I couldn't convince myself to have fun. You know what I'm talking about? Like I couldn't, it was different. It's like ugh, trying to drown out something that was going on inside, trying to drown it out, forget about it. And every time I'd take a pause, it would come back and I'd ugh, drown it out. And I had this battle going on the whole night. I went home. I was, you know, yeah, not in good condition. I went to sleep. It was a Friday night to boot, but I wasn't really convicted of the Sabbath strongly or anything like that. I mean, I, it wasn't like that for me. I didn't have a doctrinal series of studies or anything like that. But I went to bed, and I woke up with a hangover, and I wanted to go to church. I mean, I'm telling you, in these three weeks, everything was different. I had found something I had never found before. I was so thrilled. It was so different than anything that I could get from the world that I lived in. And I didn't want to not go to church. So I went to church with a hangover. And the church we went to was, you know, as we continued going there, we come, came to find out it was a, like a mission church there in Ohio. It was uh, supposed to be to try to reach out to young adults and burn out Adventists. We learned later that it was actually uh, you know, the people who ran the church were themselves burnout Adventists. But anyway, that's something we learn later. But the point is, in order to reach 
these people, of course, you never want to say anything that's offensive in any way or talk about things that are distinctive or anything like that because it could really make people feel bad. And so for a long time in that church, because we were there for five years, you hardly ever had a Sabbath where you had a sermon that really, you know, stepped on your toes. You know what I'm saying? But this Sabbath... This Sabbath, it just so happens that the preacher stood up and his topic was, you cannot serve two masters. You can either serve Christ or the world, but you cannot serve two masters. And I sat in my chair, they had chairs instead of pews there, and I listened to that sermon, and I'm telling you, I knew that God gave that sermon for me. I knew He was speaking directly to me. And I started to weep in my chair. And I made up my mind right there as I was listening to the sermon, as I was being overflowed with these emotions. See, the thing about a sermon like that, here's the other thing. Even though it's a hard thing, when you know God is speaking to you, it's a blessed thing. It's like a sacred thing. You're like, I can't believe it. I am... I am connected to the infinite God. He loves me. He's trying to reach me. He's stooping down right now to try to rescue me. He still loves me. He's still pursuing me. I'm so awful. Do you not know what I was doing last night? What are you doing? Why are you still after me? Why do you still love me? Why are you doing this? And while I'm sitting there, all these emotions are flooding my soul and I'm starting to weep and I just say to myself, you know what? It's not worth it. If doing anything is going to prevent the incredible joy of this communion with God that I've had over the last three weeks, then you can have it. I don't need it anymore. And I learned in that moment that you cannot superficially give someone salvation. You cannot superficially give someone peace and joy in their life. They can only receive it through repentance. I mean, that's the only way. But when you do it, when you surrender and submit and repent, I'm telling you, peace like a river. It's incredible. Now, that was just the beginning, but that was a little bit of my story. And I will tell you that in just about every series of Bible studies that I give, I will tell pieces and parts. Not all at once necessarily, but I will almost... Every aspect of what I just shared with you, I will share as I'm giving Bible studies. When you give a Bible study, the greatest power in your Bible study is your own experience with God and the evidence of your changed life as you are sharing with those individuals. I mean, we can talk all we want about making sure we have the facts straight. But it's your experience that's going to enable you to be able to relate to someone. Okay? So when we're studying the topic of salvation, you've got to ask yourself some questions. Lord, what is my story? What is my experience? And you know what? Don't be worried if you don't have some dramatic experience. You grew up in the church, what have you. I'll remind you that in John chapter 3, the Bible says, and Jesus says this, He says, the Spirit is like the wind. 
it goes to and fro. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. Okay, and this is what being born of the Spirit is like. You can't necessarily know if someone has been fully converted or not and all those types of things because it's something that happens differently for different people. And the Spirit moves differently and in different ways. But I can tell you how you can know that it has happened. I can't tell you for sure how you can know, you know where you are in the process or, or whatever, but even if you didn't have something dramatic, you can know that there has been conversion that has happened in your life if you love God. No one loves God without the Spirit of God. If you have an interest in the Bible, if you have this desire to do what's right, to serve Him, etc., you may have had that gradually come upon you as you grew up in life, whatever it is, it doesn't matter how it happened, whether it was dramatic or whether it was gradual. What matters is whether or not you have currently a love for God. Because here's the thing. I could today start getting caught up in the world and my conversion would mean little at that moment. So the question is, where are my affections today? You understand what I'm saying? We are to be converted. Paul said, I die daily. The salvation experience is one that is a continual growth experience. So we need to understand today where we are. That's why, and I'm going to encourage you to do something. Um, if you haven't, I would read the book Steps to Christ. And if you've read it, I would read it again. And I would use this, and I use it in just about every time I give a series of Bible studies, there are several places that I quote from in Steps to Christ. When you read the book Steps to Christ, if you have had an experience with God, you will read things and say, that's exactly what I had. You will read things and say, that in words that I could not put them in is describing what I experienced. I mean, I love when I read the passage in the chapter on uh, faith and acceptance. One of my favorite passages in the whole book is where it says that uh, Jesus loves to have us come to Him just as we are. Sinful, helpless, dependent. We can fall at His feet in penitence and it is His glory to encircle us in the arms of His love, to bind up our wounds, to uh, uh, heal us from all iniquity. I forget exactly the phrase, the last phrase. But you get this picture of how Jesus not only is willing to receive us just as we are, but what does it say? Jesus loves to have us come to Him just as we are. Sinful. Helpless. Dependent. When you are working with someone and they're questioning whether or not you know they can pray or those types of things, you pull out that passage and you read, listen, I want you to know about something. This is incredible, but... Jesus not only wants you to come, Jesus not only uh, is open to you coming, He's not only willing to receive you, but He loves to have us come to Him just as we are. Ah, that's incredible. Now, as you go through this book, you will highlight different passages that speak directly to your heart. And when you give a Bible study on salvation, you're going to draw from it. I promise you, you'll draw from it. So, I'm encouraging you to get the book Steps to Christ and make your way with that. All right. Um, 
let me, let me talk for a moment about a couple other things. I'm speaking in principle here, and then I'm going to, uh, you know, for those of you who are, who are really uh, analytical, I'm just going to put it in bullet point style, okay? But for right now, I wanted you to understand the principles. Let me say something about conversion. Um, I always found it interesting that Peter, Jesus, in the King James Version, it says uh, that Jesus said to Peter, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. It's an incredible statement, and it makes some people wonder, well, that means that Peter was not converted before his denial. He wasn't converted until after his denial. I don't necessarily believe that that is true. And I'm going to tell you why. Because when I look at Peter's life, I see things in his life that are so much like my own conversion. And I can tell you that when I was converted, I wasn't fully converted. Do you understand what I mean by that? I mean, everything changed, but that's in the sense of me switching directions. Not in the sense of me changing all my attitude and lifestyle and habits and all those things. They didn't happen immediately, okay? Well, Peter, I, my, one of my favorite stories is when Peter is in the boat and he's gone fishing and they don't catch anything and then Jesus comes and uh, he tells them to cast their net on the other side. Of course, it's daytime now and the fish can see the nets. So they're thinking, uh, we're fishermen, you're not. We know how to do this. We fished all night. The fish didn't come in. Now it's daytime. The fish see the nets. That's really not a smart thing to do. But nevertheless, Master, at your word, <laughs> we'll do it anyway. And they put it down and boom, the fish fill the nets so much so that they couldn't even pull them off. They had to get people to come help them. And Peter, an accomplished fisherman who knew that this was no ordinary occurrence, forgot about the fish. I mean, he totally forgot about the fish. Everybody else was like, oh. And, and they got to, had to get two boats and try to pull all the fish in. And Peter stops and he falls down at Jesus' feet. And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, this is such an interesting thing to say. <laughs> what is he trying to say? I mean... All that happened there was that some fish were caught. What is he telling? Why, why in the middle of this great catch of fish does Peter decide to tell Jesus that he's sinful? Why do you think? What happened in that moment? In that moment. Okay. Okay, you're, you're doing something here. Okay, like that. Okay, so he realized the divinity... Of Christ, in other words, he saw that that he was in the presence of the all-knowing, all-seeing God, right? All-powerful God. And it made his sinfulness apparent. Okay, two things are happening here. One is Peter is recognizing his own doubt, his own you know uh, lack of faith. And, and in connection with that, just his own human uh, sinful heart. Okay? When, when the Lord reveals your sinfulness, it's not like He's revealing, uh, Tuesday you did this. Do you remember when you did that? And that was bad. But if it weren't for that Tuesday and then a couple of Wednesdays ago, everything would be cool. No, you recognize that your, your whole life, your whole heart is sick. Okay? I remember when my wife had uh, an experience with the Lord and she was trying to explain to me what it was like when the Lord 
pinpointed something in her life and she said it was like instead of like he was reading something that I had done, it was like he was doing this. <laughs> it was like overwhelming. You have this sense. Okay? Another example. Do you remember the woman at the well in uh, John chapter 4? And Jesus says, uh, go call your husband. And she says, oh, uh, I don't have a husband. And he said, well, actually, uh, you've had five husbands and the man that you're currently with is not your husband and in that you spoke truly. And she said, can we change the subject? And she moved on to something else. Jesus allowed her to change the subject. But then when she went back and told her townspeople about what happened, what did she say? Yes, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Oh, wait a minute. All he told her was about the husband thing, right? What was happening? She was having, this is what I was trying to say earlier, it's revelation. It's bigger than just the words. God, when the Spirit of God speaks to your heart and He floods that light on your heart, you see in a broader scope than you ever did before. It's like a different pair of glasses. You know what I'm saying? And he put those different pair of glasses on her and she recognized that this man knows every secret of my heart. He knows everything. Now, here's the thing that happens. When Peter fell down, he said, uh, you know, Lord, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. At the same time that he recognizes that now the gaze of this divine Christ is on every secret of his sin-sick heart, and he sees the, the divinity of Christ, at the very same time he is sensing and feeling with all his soul that this divine Christ still loves him. That's the incredible part. It's when you recognize and you're able to see just how sick you are, more than you thought you were even, and at the same time, you're recognizing the love of God for your soul. I mean, I told you I was a people pleaser, right? I like to think of my life, uh, you know, it's almost like I was, all my young life, I was trying to keep people liking me. And I would be, I would do what I needed to do so that different people would like me. And I kind of equate it to like being in a room with a door there, and you know, I'd have to work real hard. And if somebody, oh, he's not keeping up, uh, you know, he said this, or he wore this, or he, you know, had this happen, or he, you know, likes this person, or he said this, and they want to leave, and I got to go block the door and convince them to stay. Oh, and here's somebody else trying to leave, and I go and try to block the door and keep them in my room. And I'm trying to keep people in the room of liking me. I want, I've got this thing going on in my life, and it's hard work if anybody's ever lived this way. And you're trying to keep all these people. And finally, you come to a point where it's so exhausting and you just give up and say, you're all free to go. And everybody leaves, and wouldn't you know it, you never saw him before. <laughs> but Jesus is still in your room, and he has no plans to leave. It's amazing. You had no idea. All that time, he was in your life, and you had no idea. I believe that there's a juxtaposition that happens between the all-knowing eye of God and, and our sinfulness that when you put them together brings conversion. You have to see that God is divine and that He knows every secret of your soul and that He is offering you salvation, that He is pursuing you at the same time that you see your own sinfulness in all of its uh, reality. 
And when you see those two things together, it melts the heart and it saves the soul. It's incredible. Now, some people say, oh boy, that sounds, you know, really, uh, how do I want to say? It sounds too grandiose and I, I can never experience it. I mean, I've tried. I see people get up and they tell their testimonies and it sounds wonderful but that's not me, you know, I, I just don't, it's not, my feelings are not that strong, I don't have that same experience, and they question things. I remember questioning it myself through the years, where I would study with somebody, and they'd be seeming like they really wanted to follow God, and they would pray and pray and pray, but they had some addiction they couldn't break, or they had some whatever, and I wondered to myself sometimes, God, why don't you do it? Why won't you do it? You know, and I, and I, wondered to myself sometimes. Not outright, but you kind of, by your doubts or by your questions, you begin to realize that what you're really saying is that God's not being totally fair to some of these people. But then I realized, and this is what we need to understand about salvation, everyone can be converted. Every single person can be converted by their own volition. You believe that? Let me, uh, let me read a couple things to you that I think are very valuable. This is one of the most powerful passages in the book Steps to Christ uh, that there is. Many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? You desire to give yourself to Him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt, and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you. But you need not despair. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of choice God has given to men, it is theirs to exercise. Now, I remember reading that and thinking, I'm not satisfied with that. Like it says, you know, at first it's great. You know, okay, that's me, that's me, that's me. Slavery to doubt. I can't... Uh, you know, uh, I lose confidence in my own sincerity. I can't control my thoughts, my impulses, my affections. And then, what am I told? You need to understand that you need a stronger will. And you need to choose, you know, and pull up your bootstraps and just decide, right? That's what, that's what I was feeling when I first read this. That's what I was thinking. But listen to this next part, and I want you to hear this. This is incredible. What an what a incredible promise. It goes on to say, this is on page 47 if you're wondering where this is in the book Steps to Christ. You cannot change your heart. What did that say? You can't change your heart. So you can't manufacture something that's not there. That's comforting. I want you to know. That is actually comforting for us to know that God knows. Inspiration is telling us we can't change our own heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections. You can't just say, oh, okay, I'm going to love God. You have to say, God, I, 
don't feel those affections. You can't do it yourself. You can't manufacture it. But listen to this. But you can choose to serve Him. Huh? You can give Him your will and He will then work in you to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Thus, your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. Your affections... Now, what did we just learn about your affections? We learned you cannot of yourself give to God your heart's affections. Right? But you can choose to serve Him, and then your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. Your affections will be centered upon Him, and your thoughts will be in harmony with Him. So what just happened? Let me try to explain it to you. You get up in the morning. You don't want to have devotional time. But you can do what? Choose to have devotional time. That power lies with man. You can choose to serve Him. You don't want to go to prayer meeting but you can choose to go to prayer meeting. You don't want to go to church, but you can choose to go to church. You say, I feel like I'm faking it. No, you're not. You're living by faith and not by feelings. And as by faith, you choose to do those things that you know are for your soul's best interest. It is like Jacob who said, Lord, I will not let you go until you bless me. And you're choosing to do these things. And as you do, something begins to happen. Do you know what it is? Your heart's affections begin to change. And you get to the point where now you don't need to manufacture it because God is manufacturing it. You are choosing to follow Him and God is answering you and your faith by the reality. He is creating in you a new heart. This is the beauty of the salvation picture. I now understand. Nobody can claim that they have, oh, I tried and I tried and I prayed and I prayed and God just wouldn't. No, I know for a fact that's not true. If we choose to serve Him and say, I will not let you go. I'm going to stick with you, Lord. My feelings may not bear witness right now, but I'm trusting that they will. And you choose to follow what you know to be right. God will change your affections and before long, the whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. Isn't that good? I mean, that means that I don't have to feel this incredible love for God and affection or whatever and wait for some miracle. I can simply say, Lord, I surrender my life to You and I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to pray and I'm going to read my Bible and if I don't get anything out of it today, that's okay because maybe I will tomorrow. And I'm going to go to church because I know it's the right thing to do and the devil's trying to take me out. And I know if I stay away that he can take me out, but I'm not going to let him do that. I'm going to choose to follow you and as I do, I'm going to experience the change that only you can give. That is something that people need to know. When you're studying with people on the topic of salvation, many people wonder, how can I be saved? How can I... And they either think they're going to be faking it if they you know, are doing these things, which is not true. Or they think that they've got to, you know, have some miraculous uh, 
conversion story or something, you can help people just know that just by simply trusting and obeying God, you can know you're in the center of His will. And if it doesn't seem right now like you are everywhere you want to be in terms of your affections, just by choosing to be consistently faithful, God will bring that into your life. And I'm so grateful for it. All right, we're going to take a five-minute break, and then I'm going to lay, walk through the study itself with you, okay? Five minutes. We're going to be back at 4.35. All right, let's go ahead and get started again. I'm going to offer another prayer, if you wouldn't mind bowing your heads. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the time we've spent thus far, and we pray that you would give us a good finish to our study on salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to talk about three aspects of salvation. And uh, this is um, said in different ways. So I'm going to start by speaking about what I'll call our title to heaven. We understand that um, someone like the thief on the cross can in one moment put his faith in the Lord Jesus and be promised paradise, right? It's, it's a, a moment in time where he received his title, or we might say his ticket to heaven. Uh, it's in theological terms sometimes referred to as justification. Okay, then we have our fitness for heaven. The angels don't want a bunch of rascals up there. So there's a process by which heaven uh, saves us, not merely in giving us a title to heaven, but changes our very character and heart, and that is a fitness for heaven, and that is theologically referred to as sanctification. That's true. Yeah, any, you know, either of these, you're not going to have uh, without that. Okay, and the truth is, you know, we can spend a lot of time on this, but we're justified by grace through faith, and that what that means is that God actually um, gives us that desire, because we wouldn't have it without the Spirit of God. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. And then the third one, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call this. The realization of heaven. And that doesn't mean like, I realize that there's a heaven. That means we actually inhabit heaven. <laughs> okay? Okay, and this happens at the time of glorification where we receive new bodies and we meet the Lord and we actually realize the promise of heaven. Now, a few things about these. Uh, three categories. I want to make sure that I cover everything I was thinking of. By the way, um, if you want to get into theological discussion, this idea of justification, which is kind of a moment in time when you receive the gift of salvation, um, is also sometimes referred to as imputed righteousness it's imputed to you that means it's like it's credited to you so 
it's a gift. You receive salvation, you receive the title to heaven merely because the righteousness of Christ is credited to your account. Okay? At the same time, you have this sanctification happening which is not imputed, but what we call imparted righteousness. And that's where the Spirit of God is actually working out His will in your heart and life. Okay? Um, so, when somebody, when you talk to people and they say, you know, I'm saved, okay, because you'll study with people and they'll say, I'm saved, what are they generally referring to? They're actually generally referring to right here. They have a title to heaven, okay? They, when they say, I'm saved, they're in essence saying, I'm going to heaven. I've, I've got a ticket to heaven. Um, but what Seventh-day Adventists believe strongly, and this is what separates us from many other Christians, is that we believe that these cannot be separated, but most specifically, when you're talking about the process of salvation, I'm just going to talk about these two for a moment. Okay? Justification and sanctification. So let me give you a, let me try to boil this down a little bit for you. So some people say, you know, I'm saved. And so if I, you know, commit this sin or that sin or whatever, you know, I've already received my salvation and nothing can change that. And I'm in the palm of the Father's hand and nothing can pluck me out of His hand. And, you know, so many people believe in what they refer to as once saved, always saved. So you can't do anything to not be saved. But there are some people who are kind of close to that, <laughs> who might not claim once saved, always saved, but they in essence believe that because, you know, I believe in Jesus, uh, you know, that He's the Son of God, that He's my Savior, that He died for my sins, therefore I have a title to heaven. I'm going to heaven. And, you know just because I have this little vice or habit or whatever, that's not necessarily going to keep me out of heaven. And people with that mindset are often asking questions about certain things that are the will of God, like this question. So you teach something like how Christians, Bible-believing Christians, should not put pepperoni on their pizza. How Bible-believing Christians should return a faithful tithe. How Bible-believing Christians should, you know, dress in a certain way. They should keep the Sabbath with respect according to the biblical picture of what keeping the Sabbath should be, etc. And, you know, they just ask the question, is that really a salvation issue? What are they asking? Can I do that and still have my title to heaven, right? I mean, that's basically what they're asking. That very premise, if you read the book Steps to Christ, it'll point this out. But that very premise is a defeated premise. It's almost a premise um, that 
could cause me to question whether or not they have salvation. And I'm not saying that people don't struggle and there couldn't be some of that that happens with the wrestling that we all go through. But there is, to a great degree, Elamai says that true Christians do not ask how little must be done in order to enter the kingdom of God, but aim at perfect conformity to the will of their Redeemer. That's what she says in Steps to Christ. So they're not asking, well, you know, that doesn't seem like a really big issue. Is that really? A sound? What they're saying is, can I not do that thing and still go to heaven? Or can I do that thing and still go to heaven because I really want to do that thing? And so then they begin to say, I don't think that's important to God. <laughs> that thing just seems so minor to God. I, I think God is bigger than that. I, my God that I serve is bigger than that. He's, he's more loving. He's more large-hearted. He's more accepting. And He's not a micromanager. He's not a legalist. He's not arbitrary. And I just don't think that God would make a big deal out of that. Yeah, to which I will sometimes have to point out, well, just a, just a question. Why was it that, what was it that happened that Adam and Eve brought death and misery upon the world? What was the awful thing? I think there was, a, they, they killed one of the, no, wait a minute, let me think. They, oh, that's right. They ate a piece of fruit. Now, I'm told that we should eat fruit, okay? <laughs> so, it seems a real odd thing to say that all this happened because they ate a piece of fruit. Could you, I mean, just think about this with me for a moment. Could you imagine that maybe they may have asked themselves the question, Eve could have asked the question, is there really a difference between this tree and all the other trees, I mean, it can't be a big deal. And because she determined in her own mind what she thought was important instead of just trusting what God said was important, that became, um, it became sin, but it became ultimately the, the death knell for all of us. That's pretty... Critical, isn't it? And you look through the Bible, that's not the only place where you have that kind of thing happen. You have Nadab and Abihu playing with the fire. You have Uzzah reaching out and trying to study the ark. You have different examples where people did things that were clearly and boldly contrary to what God said, but in their mind they may have rationalized that it wasn't a big deal. So instead of trusting God to know whether it was a big deal, they made up their mind as to whether it was a big deal. Do you follow what I'm saying? I always do that thing that Mark Finley does with the law of God to try to explain that to people. You know the story of the ten fields that Mark Finley does? Anybody ever hear that? Mark Finley doesn't preach evangelistic series like he used to, so many of you may not remember. So I'll tell you a brief story. So this guy has ten uh, fields, and he's got a son who's in agricultural school, and the son wants uh, you know, to basically following the footsteps of his dad. And his dad says, you know, your mother and I, we're going off on a vacation uh, for the summer and we're getting ready to retire. And if you will take care of the farm over the summer and do what we say, um, then we will, when we retire, we'll give you the farm. 
And the son said, oh, fantastic. You got it, dad. I'm going to do it. And so he takes him around and he shows him what to do. And he takes him to each of the 10 fields and says, okay, here in this field, I want you to plant corn and this one, green beans. And he goes all the way down. He says, and this last one, I want you to plant tomatoes. And he says, you got it, dad. I'm going to do just as you say. You and mom go have a good time and everything will be great when you come back. So he heads off. And then the son, of course, the son's been to college. Smart kid. So what he does is he takes, goes to the first field and he takes a soil sample. And he takes it back to the lab to check out what that soil is best for. And wouldn't you know it, the soil was best for corn, just like his dad had said. And so he planted corn there. And the second one, he took a soil sample, he checked it out. And it was perfect for green beans, just like his dad said. And right down the line, it was just like his dad said. And he got to the last field, and he took a soil sample, and he said, you know, dad said tomatoes, but it almost looks like potatoes would grow better here. And so he planted potatoes. So his dad comes home. His son is there, proud of all the crops that have been growing. And he says, what do you think, dad? He says, oh, everything looks fantastic. Oh, wait a minute. Where are the tomatoes that we needed in this field over here? Oh, no worries. I checked the soil, and you know, uh, it looked like potatoes might grow better over there. So what do you think? The potatoes, they're going all right, huh? I said, oh, son, I thought I made myself clear. I'm sorry, but you disobeyed, and you're not, we can't give you the farm. And that's a sad story. It's a really sad story. But that's not the point. The point is to ask you this question. What percentage did the son obey the father? Zero. Why? Let me ask you a question. If the son thought that the soil in that first field might have been better for something other than corn, would he have planted corn there? No. Why did he plant corn there? Because it agreed with his own idea. His own judgment. Do you follow? This is why, when we get down to it, this is why the test of salvation in the end will be the Sabbath. Because ultimately, the Sabbath is like that fruit in the Garden of Eden where, you know, how do you tell the difference between this tree and that tree? You know, you. From our standpoint, you can't see the difference. We don't know why that is different from that. And we sometimes don't... We know why you don't kill, why you don't steal, right? We can see morally why that is wrong. But we can't quite figure out what the difference between one day and another is. There's only one reason that we would keep the seventh day holy versus the first day. One reason. God said. It is not on my judgment at all. I can't lean on my judgment at all. It's naked trust and faith in God. And that's why it is a symbol of genuine salvation. Because salvation is ultimately comes down to simple, naked trust in God. So when we talk about people who have this little question, is it a salvation issue? The problem that they're having is they're starting to take it in their own hands to determine what is important and what's not important to God. 
we don't need to be the ones to try to figure out just simply, is it the will of God or not? And if it's plain in the Bible, then it's important to God. And we should obey. And we should trust that He's got good reasons for it. Because God will never ask us to lay aside something that's not for our best benefit. The truth is, salvation is simply a matter of whether or not we have trusted and believed in God. Belief will always obey. So, what you have here is a lot of people who want to cling to their title to heaven, but often reject sanctification, which is the change of, of habits and life that prepare us and have a fit, to have a fitness for heaven. But you cannot separate justification and sanctification. You cannot separate the title from the fitness. You can't say, I want to serve or Jesus. I accept Jesus as my Savior. But not accept Him as my Lord. You can't do that. If you don't accept Him as your Lord, guess what? You don't have Him as your Savior. And do you know what the evidence of this is? I'm going to give you evidence. Bible evidence. Are you ready? Romans 5.1. Somebody turn there and just read to me what the Bible says about how we are justified. Somebody tell me how we're justified. Somebody read it. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Somebody else turn to Acts 26. I believe it's verse 28. If it's not, I'll know quickly. Somebody read that one. 18, thank you. I wasn't sure if it was 28 or 18. Acts 26, 18. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. They receive an inheritance among those who are sanctified by what? Okay, so how are we justified? How are we sanctified? So let me ask you a question. If you have genuine biblical faith, then are you able to split these up? No. If you have genuine faith, then you receive a title to heaven at this very same time you are being made fit for heaven. You're being sanctified. And the moment that you start to distrust God and persistently refuse Him and refuse the sanctification that He's wanting to do, when you start to persistently refuse that, that is, in essence, a faithless act. It's, a, it's, it's doubt instead of faith. And not only do you lose your sanctification, but you also lose your justification. These are two sides of the same coin. You can't be made fit for heaven. Or I'm sorry, uh, refuse a fitness for heaven and still keep your title to heaven. That's why it's so important that we not fall into the trap of the once saved, always saved, but we continue to recognize that you have to accept Jesus as both Lord and Savior. And this is where many of our Christian friends do not put proper emphasis on what we refer to as sanctification or character development. If you read in the Bible, it does not just say that we... In some places it says, I have been saved. In other places it says, I am being saved. And in other places it says that um, I, I'm trying to remember the 
text. I'm not sure if it specifically says I will be. But ultimately, you have all three of these phases that are spoken of. I have been saved in the sense that I have been given my title to heaven and I am in the school of Christ. And I am being saved in the sense that I am being transformed and being brought into harmony with the will of God so that I'm made fit for heaven. And as long as I am in that school of Christ where I'm allowing Him to be the Lord of my life, then I maintain that title. Now you say, but pastor, I'm not perfect. So I get worried. Am I or am I not going to heaven? Just tell me. Well, I can't tell you. But I've got a parable that I wrote that I'm going to tell you. And it's not great, but it's the only one I have. It's the lawnmower parable. And here's how it goes. There's a little boy. He's uh, nine years old, and his, it's his, uh, or I'm sorry, his, yes, his mother's birthday. i got to remember the parable. <laughs> and the mother goes out to run an errand, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to mow the lawn. Mom's been wanting someone to mow the lawn. No one's mowing the lawn. I'm going to do this special for her birthday. He's never mowed the lawn before. He's only nine years old. He doesn't really even know how to work the equipment. But he talks his neighbor into starting the lawnmower for him. And the neighbor starts it, and he heads out with the lawnmower, and he makes his way around, and he, you know, misses big swaths of grass because he's not really very good at it. He runs over a rock and breaks the blade. He goes over part of the flower bed. That didn't go so well. But he thought he was doing great. And he goes and finishes the job, and he pushes the mower in, and he goes and stands on the porch, and he waits uh, for his mother to come home, and his chest is high, and mom comes home. She comes up to the front, and he says, Happy birthday, mom. To which she says what? You dumb kid. Is that what she says? What'd she say? Thank you, honey. That's wonderful that you thought of mommy like that. Oh, this is going to take me forever to fix. I don't know. But she embraces him. Now change the story. And the boy is not uh, nine. He's 14. It's his job to mow the lawn. But he's gone two weeks and he's not mowed the lawn. His mother has told him for the last three days to mow the lawn. He still hasn't mowed the lawn. And he gets a sunny day and instead of mowing the lawn, he goes out to play basketball with his friends. His mother says, get back here and you need to mow the lawn. And uh, So he pulls the mower out and he's in a hurry so he skips big swaths of grass and he's not paying attention, showing off for his friends and he goes over a rock and breaks the blade. He, you know, is going too fast and he cuts off part of the flower bed. He finishes up the job, he pushes the mower in and he runs off to play ball with his friends. And what does his mother say? <laughs> you know, what did I say? Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah, she says, you get back here. And then she tells him what for, right? Is that what she does? You people are crazy. Are you telling me that these two people did the exact same thing and you're treating them differently? Why? Okay. Understanding, level of maturity. Knew better. Wanted out of love, motivation. Okay. The first child, how much of his heart did he give? How much did the second child give? 
Well, he gave half of it. <laughs> you see, the righteousness of Christ will cover our defects if we are seeking to follow God and, and giving our best to the Master. But the righteousness of Christ will not cover a half-hearted, partial obedience that is actually, where the heart is actually with something else in the world rather than with God. It's not going to cover the person who is going through the motions and, and just has a form of religion without any real genuine power or communion or connection with God. And we have to understand this. It's two similar results but that motivation makes all the difference. And God is a fair and righteous judge. I can't tell you where you are in that spectrum. I can't. But you can make sure that you make your calling and election sure by going to God and saying, Oh Lord, try me. Know my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me. Lord, and, and don't let me cling to sin. Help me, Lord. This issue, help me to know, understand how to get out of it. Do whatever it takes to commit your life to Christ. When you give Him your heart, you may stumble and make mistakes along the way and what have you, but the Lord will ultimately say, well done, good and faithful servant. So these aspects of salvation um, are important for you to understand because when you're talking to someone about being saved, you're not always talking about the same thing. Sometimes you're talking about whether or not you're going to heaven, sometimes you're talking about being made fit for heaven. But understand that you are never going to go to heaven if you have no intention of being made fit for heaven. You understand that? Okay, good. Because your Bible study needs to too. Now, if you have a, a uh, set of studies that we gave you, I want you to pull out number four and we'll point out a few things in that study. Although it says that when we consider what Christ did for us, he never once thought what he could do little, how little he could do for us. Yeah, that's you know? right. And we think about how much he did everything. That's right. That's a good uh, motivator. Does anybody not have a set and you just need the study guide? Now, before I dive into the study, I'm going to show you the key... I'm going to show you a few different things here. First of all, Pastor Mark shared this morning that when you're ready to give a Bible study, you really want to have three things that you're answering. What's the reason for the study that you're giving? What are the key points in the study that you want to communicate? And what, kind of, what are you going to be asking them to do or appealing to them to do when you're done with the study? So what's the reason for the study on salvation? What's the ultimate outcome that you're wanting you're wanting them to surrender to Christ okay which has uh, uh, it's a bit of a what's the word I'm looking for uh, cliche thank you it's a bit of a cliche it's an accurate statement but for many people they don't understand what you mean surrender to Christ well what you're talking about is is very specific things that a person does in their life, like uh, committing their ways to Christ 
and choosing to um, you know, leave behind certain things in their life that are contrary to Christ and to make choices to begin following Christ, to begin coming to church, to begin having a devotional time and those types of things. As that change that you're wanting to see where they give their life to Christ. Um, what I would suggest is that when you're thinking about a reason here, and this is where you know it takes a little nuance, but when you study with a person, you will find out where they are in the spectrum of their relationship to God. And I know what the ultimate goal that I want is, okay, with them being fully committed to Christ and you know, experiencing a conversion and a transformation in their life. But there's probably not, that's probably not going to all happen at the end of the salvation study. So what I'm trying to find out is what are the barriers as I'm studying with them and what is the next thing that I feel like is most important for them to do? And so, you know, you know what your ultimate goal is, but don't feel like you have to accomplish it all at the end of this particular Bible study. Okay? So, ultimately, we could say their own salvation or commitment to Christ. And I don't mind that word surrender that you used either. Okay, keys. I want to talk to you about the keys. And I do this in five different, uh, you can call them steps or whatever. But it's kind of an easy way to remember. And you can give a Bible study on salvation without having a Bible study guide. Okay? So I'm going to show you this here. And I can do this study using any study guide because I know that all these components are going to be in there. Sometimes they're shuffled a little bit, but I can find them. The first one starts with God. The next one is man, then God, then man, and then it ends with God. So it begins with God, and it ends with God. God's love is where it starts. Okay? Now, those of you who have read the book Steps to Christ know that the second chapter is a chapter called The Sinner's Need of Christ. Ellen White, uh, it was revealed to her that she needed to, before that chapter, that was going to be chapter number one, it was revealed to her that before that chapter, she needed to put a chapter on God's love for man. So the very first chapter in the book Steps to Christ is God's love for man. It didn't start that way, but that's how it is now. And uh, this is the the ultimate foundation for salvation. It is the ultimate starting point for salvation. And for this, I use the text. Um, and you, there are different texts you can use on these too, by the way. But I use the text John 3.16. I'll tell you why I use that text. If you read uh, John 3.16, it says... For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes will not perish but find everlasting life. What you have in that is the love of God being shown as the starting point. And this is important. Let me put it this way. There are some people who, and I you know, had to really reason through this early on in my experience, who aren't real sure about salvation and why Jesus had to die for our sins. It's like, 
why did he have to die if God loves me? Why did he require Jesus to die? And some people think, well, that was because God has wrath. And so in order for God's wrath to be changed so that he now has favor toward us again, Jesus had to die. And people kind of try reasoning this out and it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't quite sound right. Do you understand what I'm saying? And the truth is, if you look at every heathen religion, that's kind of what it looks like where uh, there's an appeasement being made by the sacrifice in order for the God to no longer look with anger, but to have that anger appeased and now to uh, be able to look with favor. But what I love about John 3.16 is it says, for God, what? So loved the world that He gave His Son. What that proves is that God loved the world even though the world was enemies of His. He loved the world and that's the very reason that He gave His Son. So there was not need of Jesus to die in order to produce in the Father's heart a love for man. That Necessity was not there, okay? And I could take a while to talk about that issue, but just suffice it to say that that text really points that out. And by the way, you know, I really wrestled with the idea of the wrath of God for some time and just, you know, how does that fit with the love of God? Let me give you a little illustration. Well, first let me tell you this. In Romans chapter 1, if you read Romans 1 verses 18 and onward, it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. It does not say that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodly men and unrighteous men. Did you just hear what I said? Did you understand the difference? It says the ungodliness of men and the unrighteousness of men that the wrath of God is revealed against, not against the men themselves. Now, if the men are clinging to ungodliness and unrighteousness, then yes, they're going to be recipients of the wrath of God. But the wrath of God preeminently is on the sin itself. Why? Because the sin is destructive to the person that he loves. Uh, put it this way. This is the illustration. So let's say you have a you know, 10-year-old and you move into a new neighborhood and you're hoping that you're you know, little boy will get involved with some of the neighborhood kids so that they feel happy that you moved and all that. So you let them go out and hang out with some of the boys. And you're beginning to get a little bit worried because he's staying out late. There's, you know, some disrespect in some of the neighborhood boys you're not sure about and what have you. And after a few weeks, you're putting clothes away and you come to your boy's drawer, uh, clothes drawer, and you pull it out and you start to move some things around. And down there at the bottom is... Uh, a needle and a bag with drugs in it. And you begin to put two and two together about some of the behaviors you've been seeing, etc. How do you feel about that when you see it? Tell me what your emotion is. You could have very, depending on who you are, but I'd be pretty hot. What are you going to want to do to that? You're going to, want to, you're going to flush it. You're going to destroy it. You're going to do something with it, right? Why? Because why do you care? If you didn't love your child, would you care? Would you be angry about it? 
I want you to understand something. The wrath of God is evidence of the love of God. If God's wrath is in proportion to His love, and if it were not for His love, you and I would not have this um, incredible... You know, you can talk about wrath in terms of the final destruction and all that, I understand. But this is, in essence, the passion of God in saving humanity. I mean, it's, you can't separate the wrath of God from the love of God. It's an expression, in essence, of the character of God, and God is love. So we've got to understand that God, we can't separate these things and, and try to Old Testament God, New Testament God, all these different things that we get confused about. We have to understand that God is love all the time, and God knows when the most merciful thing to do is to administer justice, and He knows when the most just thing to do is administer mercy, and there's a perfect blend between justice and mercy in the character of God. And salvation is, is revealed in that. So, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And if you look in Ephesians chapter 2 when it talks about the salvation story and says how man was dead in trespasses and sins, it then says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, when we were still dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, etc. It comes in and talks about how God, even when we were dead because of His great love, He put in motion the salvation story. Same exact thing in Titus chapter 3, salvation story. It talks about how man was all wicked and everything else. And then it says, but when the kindness uh, and love of God appeared, etc. And then it talks about how He saved us through the washing of regeneration, etc. So the whole salvation story, the engine that starts it, is the love of God. Then comes man's need. And the text that I use for that is Romans 3. 23. What's Romans 3.23 tell us? Wages of sin is death. That's right. Uh, actually, that's not right. That's Romans 6.23. It's, it's where it tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's right. But we're getting close because the next one is what I call God's offer. And that one is Romans 6.23. Because after you talk about how all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and therefore, you know, and these are connected because then in Romans 6.23 you say the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? But this is the grace of God, but you understand that man is not saved by grace, period. But if you read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says uh, that we are saved by grace, through faith. And faith, by the way, is the handle by which we receive all the blessings of God. That is the human agent's uh, uh, role in salvation. If it weren't for faith, everyone would be saved. But we would all be robots. Faith is, is the simple acceptance of the gift of God that happens when we believe in Christ enough to follow what He tells us and to go where He leads. And this is ultimately man's acceptance of that offer. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different 
aspects to man's acceptance. And when you look in most Bible studies, um, what you're going to find is that most of the Bible studies on salvation are on this point. Okay, and I usually, if I'm going to boil it down to one thing, I'm going to use 1 John 1.9. What's that say? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, what's included in if we confess our sins? Yeah, ultimately, this is acknowledging our sinfulness. And we're told in the book Steps to Christ that repentance precedes forgiveness. So this verse is actually inclusive of repentance as well. This is, this is an honest and total acknowledgement of our sin that is, is, in essence, turning it over to God and ready to go where God leads, to trust Him from there on out. So this man's acceptance includes confession, it includes repentance, and ultimately faith, believing in God and now going where He leads. And then the last part... Course, yes, yeah, that's good because it's it's uh, it's important that we recognize that there is a difference between. Um, well, I like to say it this way: David said, "I acknowledge my transgressions," but sometimes there's a difference between acknowledging my transgressions and acknowledging my transgressions to be transgressions. What do I mean by that? It's possible for someone to say, I know that what I'm doing, God, you don't want me to do. I confess that what I'm doing is something that you have asked me not to do. That's not confession. That's, in essence, saying, I confess, God, that you don't agree with what I'm doing, but I don't see anything wrong with it. And some people do that. I, I'm, I'm willing to confess to you, God, that, that all the things I'm doing are things that you told me not to do. But it's different when you know in your heart and agree with God that it was wrong. Acknowledging our transgressions is actually acknowledging that they are sinful, destructive, wrong. And we need God to help us to see it clearly that way. But that's when you're sorry for your sin. That's when you have a, as, as Paul called, a repentance that need not be repented of. A godly sorrow. And that's what's involved in genuinely accepting the gift of salvation. We've got to see and acknowledge our need for what it really is before we can really uh, experience the last part, which is what I call God's miracle. And for this... I want to make sure that I don't have two. I have two different ones that I'm thinking of, but I think I, yep. Second Corinthians is what I like. Second Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creature, a new creation. Do you know that when salvation happens, it's not merely you being modified, but it's you dying and a totally new creation being made. See, you can't, the, the carnal heart, according to Romans uh, chapter 8, it's impossible 
for it to be made subject to the law of God. It's, it's totally irredeemable. And that's why the carnal heart has to die and we become a totally new creature. Behold, uh, you know, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, right? That's the Christian life. It's a totally new life. And I say miracle because it's a resurrection. The Apostle Paul, when he speaks to the Philippians, he says, we need, I need to experience your resurrection power if by any means I'll attain to the resurrection from the dead. Well, what are you talking about? He's saying he wants to experience the resurrection before he experiences the resurrection. What he's saying is that I've got to experience spiritual resurrection in my life if I'm ever going to be among those who are resurrected when Jesus comes and calls people from the grave. And we need, it's every bit as much a miracle salvation is as someone being raised from the dead. You understand that? Salvation is is a spiritual resurrection. And when God reaches down, I love the book Steps of Christ because it says that every right impulse comes from Christ. Did you know that? Every right impulse that you have, you think you're in any way... I mean, Paul says, I know that in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Nothing. The heart is deceitful, Jeremiah says, above all things and desperately wicked. That means that if there's any inclination in you to do right, any desire to be uh, selfless in an act or anything like that, that right impulse comes from Christ. And that is a spirit. He makes us alive by His grace. It's spiritual resurrection and it is a miracle that He makes us a new creature. Now, those aspects are what I make sure that they understand in any salvation study I use. So let's take this one and let me just point out a few things to you. Yes, that's exactly right. And this one does. I was just going to show if you open this up, the first question is, how did sin enter the world? So it tries to give a little of a great controversy background. Then number two, after he was evicted from heaven, where did Satan carry forward his rebellion against God? Now, if you notice this one, it points out and he said to the woman, has God and what's the who remembers what the text says? Has God indeed said, or has God really said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What is he trying to do when he says, has God really said that? Doubting what? Not just his word. Something deeper than that. Okay. Yeah. Something that's much more important to us. His love. That's right. This is... He's causing her to doubt God's love for her. Did God really say, is God maybe not looking out for your best interest? Is God withholding something? I mean, you know, it's sort of like that teenager who says, did your parents really say you had to be home by 10? When you put that word really in there, what are you saying? Yeah, are they that, you know, they're, they're not. That's unreasonable. That's irrational. That's just selfish. That's arbitrary. That's whatever. And they begin to make the person question whether that's a good judgment and and coming from a heart that actually cares about the person rather than a selfish heart. So she began to doubt whether or not God had her full interest in mind. He, He was causing her to doubt the love of God. That's why the great controversy starts and you read actually the the five-volume series on the Great Controversy, the Conflict of the Ages series, it starts with God is love in the beginning of 
patriarchs and prophets, and it ends with God is love at the end of the great controversy. Because that's what the whole thing is. It's coming to this realization that God is love. He always loved us. That was always a deception of the devil that he didn't at any point in time. And so right here is where I would highlight number one. And I would circle number, question number two, and I would make sure that I made a point of that. Now, you know what I would do with number one? Not much. I'd read it. I'd have him read it. I'd read the thing, and I'd move on to number two. You can't spend... 15 minutes on every question when you give someone a Bible study. So that's why you need key points, right? So you've got, you figure out what your key points are, and then you find out where you're going to pause in the study to say those. And oftentimes it's when I get to a key point where I bring in some of my own testimony and share a little something to help bring it home. Okay, so then you get to number three. Right. That's right. The Great Controversy study came right before this, so that was uh, reviewed too. Okay, number three. What was the result of Eve choosing to sin? Separation from God. And I would just point out, sin separates us from God. It's not that God arbitrarily is doing this. This is naturally what happens. I mean, it's sort of like your child. If they all of a sudden aren't wanting to hang out with a family because they're going and doing other things that the family doesn't want to do, is, is it you that's separating from them? No, they're separating from you. And we separate from God when we choose to go down a path. He's not trying to separate from us. So, you know, you point that out, but I wouldn't spend a significant amount of time on it. Number four, how did sin affect Adam and Eve's descendants? The wages of sin is death. And then it goes on. Here it's used to the text that I use in Romans 6, but it's the second half of that text that I use for God's offer. So right here is where I would talk about man's need. Number four. How did sin affect Adam and Eve's descendants? And it begins to talk about, um, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It puts that in the notes. You'll notice Romans 3.23, our text for number two here is right in the notes of that particular one, number, of question number four. So I would take a little bit of time and talk about how we're all, because of Adam and Eve's sin, we're all bankrupt. Our heart is deceitful and all have sinned and we we have actually found ourselves out of harmony. Sin is in each one of our hearts and we have separated ourselves from God to where eternal life is impossible for us unless there's someone to save us. And then I come to number five. How can a person escape the consequences of sin? And there you have the second half, right? Of Romans 6.23. The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And that's where I talk about God's offer. And I talk about how Jesus died for our sins, which is what it goes into in number five. It continues in number six, how to receive eternal life. Number seven, how can it be so simple? What, what if I don't deserve it? All of that is just uh, expounding on the offer of salvation. Then comes number eight. What's question number eight? What is faith? Now we're entering into not the offer of salvation, but what? Man's acceptance of salvation. So we're going to start talking about faith and forgiveness in the next one, and confession in the next one. All those elements are things that you're wanting to draw out that the, the next thing after being offered salvation is what does it in, involve for us to receive salvation? What do we do to accept salvation? And so you talk about the steps of confession and repentance and believing in God. And you know, one thing that I do do here when it talks about faith is I will make a difference between believing like the demons believe in James chapter 2. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? In James 2, 
it says that the demons believe and they tremble. So in John 3.16, when it says, whoever believes in Him will receive eternal life, apparently it's not like the demons believe. Right? So, I would never tell someone this. I would never tell someone, no, we have to do more than believe. I would never tell them that. Because that's because the Bible says, <laughs> he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. It says, believe... Uh, you know, that whoever believes in me shall have eternal life, right? The point is not that you have to do something more than believe. The point is, what does believe mean? Believe itself contains the idea of trusting someone enough to give your life to them and obey them. Like, if I told you, don't touch the stove, it's hot. If you believe me, what are you going to do? Not touch the stove, right? So inherent in believing someone is corresponding obedience, okay? And I would explain to them that that's what biblical faith, biblical belief really is, is trusting God not just as your Savior, but as your Lord and, and surrendering your life to Him. What's that? Yeah, that's right. Then you come to number uh, 11 and 12 or, or, or more of that. And you notice number 12, it goes over four simple steps to salvation. Um, you can... Those are all part of man's acceptance. And, you know, I don't feel the need to really expound deeply on that. I think the most important thing is that they understand what you're talking about. Not that they memorize what these steps are. You understand what I mean? You need to, they need to understand what's involved for them to accept Christ into their life. And oftentimes that has to do with confession and repentance. And there may be specific things that are involved in that. And then number 13, having received the gift of eternal life, how can I now live a life that is pleasing in the sight of God? And it talks about how I've been crucified and now the life I live is by faith in the Son of God. Now I talk about God's miracle. I'm dead, but at the same time, I've been given a new heart. Now I'm made a new creature. And I would probably insert 2 Corinthians 5.17 into the study and read it so that they understand that a Christian is not a modification of who I used to be, but I become a new person. Old things pass away. Uh, all things become new. And then, of course, number 14 is a good question. Will there be challenges? Yes, there will be challenges. Yes, there are going to be uh, battles that we have to fight as the flesh never goes away, but we can keep it subdued if we keep our eyes on Jesus. And then you come to the end of the study and it has a question. Do you see the question in the uh, tan section? Never skip that question. Never skip that question. Just read it. Jesus offers you the free gift of salvation. Will you invite Jesus into your life today? Accept Him as your Savior and allow Him to live His life in you? Is that your desire today? And you know, if you're studying with someone and you read that question, I would give them a chance to respond. And sometimes you know, they're like, oh, you really want me to respond? Well, how would you answer that? And give them a chance to respond. That's the idea of somebody applying what they learned to their life and having to come face to face with the Lord Jesus and ask himself, am, am I ready to do something with what I just learned? And uh, so embrace the silence as they think about it. And then, but don't skip over that question. But so you can see how if you understand a topic, and in this case we're talking about salvation, you can take 
an amazing facts Bible study guide or a, you know, the, the Bible doctrines guides that Mark has or any other study guide, this study guide, and you can highlight the key points in like five of the questions or whatever and make those your focus. If you understand a topic, you can use any study guide to study it. You understand what I'm saying? It's important for you to understand the topic for yourself from the Bible. And so study it. There is no uh, substitution for you studying it out for yourself. I know we say all the time, just like we did it today and we believe it, that you know more than 99% of the people out there. You're ready to give a Bible study. I believe that with all my heart. You could go out right now and give a Bible study. I have no question in my mind. But if you want to be more and more proficient and speak with conviction and be able to uh, address the needs that exist and that come up in a Bible study, then you got to study a little and get more and more comfortable with the topic. And as you do, you can use any study guide and you'll be able to use it to, to give a clear picture of what you're trying to communicate. All right. So there's salvation. Do you all feel good about that? You feel like you could do that? Amen. I knew that you did. Um, <clears throat> the truth is that if you yourself have experienced the salvation of God in your own life, then you can give a study on salvation just by talking to somebody about it. Because you understand it if you've experienced it. We can praise the Lord for that. All right, we've come to our close, and thank you for allowing me a few extra minutes. Tomorrow, Mark, we start at what time, Pastor Mark? Nine o'clock? All right, we will see you then. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time we've had to study the topic of salvation. We pray that above all else, you would help us to know this topic in our own life. May it be that we have that connection with you, Lord, that enables us to be able to discern the needs that exist in others that we might minister to them in a way that would be for the salvation of their souls. Please bless us, Lord, as we continue throughout this camp meeting to gain insights from you and to draw closer to heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.